Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will be picking up the text in Genesis chapter 7, verses 10 to 12. Actually, that's where we'll start. We may likely actually get uh, to the end of the chapter, but we'll see. Uh, You know how these things go. So in the first five verses, we looked at the saving of the remnant. Uh, Then in verses six to nine, we kind of looked at the time frame, went back and reevaluated that. You can listen to the previous episode. And now as we get into verses 10 to 12, we want to look at wrath outpoured. This is the actual outpouring of the wrath, God bringing to, uh, bringing to bear what he had said and uh, bringing it upon the earth. In verse 10, we read this, And after seven days the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Uh, let's just stop right there and look that the flood waters came according to God's word. And this is obviously verse 10. But he had given the warning to Noah here in verse 4. He said, For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and in seven days. Uh, Just want to make a note here at the beginning as well that this is very literal. Um, This is a discussion that I have from time to time, especially I, I know and recognize that I have brothers and sisters in Christ who are of different eschatological uh, positions than I hold, and that's fine as long as we don't compromise the fundamentals of the gospel, the sin qua non, the without which nothing. Uh, If you compromise what are fundamental to the gospel, things that are fundamental, then you don't have salvation, right? Uh, One of the fundamentals of the gospel would be the virgin birth of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ, uh, those types of doctrines. And so I recognize that um, having a specific view of the end times, uh, that doctrine that we call eschatology, that's not necessary for salvation necessarily. I I, I do think, uh, and of course I I wouldn't say this if I didn't believe it, but I, I do think that my position makes the most sense of the entire Bible, and I'm not the only one who holds it. Uh, but I, I have a lot of friends who hold other positions and I've seen some very robust discussions and I get that. Uh, but I, I, I don't like what they have to do hermeneutically. I don't mean to throw all these huge terms out, but hermeneutics is the science of interpretation and the discipline of the interpretation of scripture and what you have to do with certain genres of scripture and how you have to, to interpret them. Uh, is very, I, I don't think it's the best treatment of scripture. And I believe, again, it's not that I need to persuade everybody in the world, but logic dictates that if I have a position and I can present a plausible explanation for the things around me, then that's that's what I'm trying to do. And, and I see a, a whole explanation without having to throw nearly entire books of the Bible uh, out as just merely allegorical or symbolic I, I do believe that there is an actual way to uh, see the scriptures from beginning to end, all the way from Genesis to the very end of Revelation without having to subsume many, many sections of scripture and indeed entire books of scripture uh, to symbolism. 
you say, what does that have to do with this right here? Well, I'm getting to that. One of the points that I have made with uh, some of my Presbyterian and Reformed brethren, uh, brethren is, is this. I say, you know, we disagree on the end times when it comes to the kingdom of God. And, uh, you know, that's a discussion for another day, maybe when we're going through Revelation or something like that. And the reason is, according to them, is that these things, you know, the Bible seems to present the kingdom of God as something future. And they're saying, no, it's not future. It's now symbolic and it's therefore spiritual. It's in our hearts. And they go to a few different passages. Again, I'm not here to unpack all of that. And, and they say, uh, it just has to be, and basically what they're doing, and I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and say it is they're falling uh, victim to the trap of second Peter chapter three and basically mocking the promise of, of Christ's return. Where is the promise of his coming? All things have gone on as they always are. And if, if we adopt that mentality, then we can say it's been 2000 years since Christ ascended into heaven. He's not bringing back, uh, you know, he's not coming back to earth and they're not denying his bodily return. Don't, don't get me wrong on that. They're not denying that, but they're saying he's not coming with him, uh, and, and establishing a literal thousand year reign on the earth. Why is that? Because that just seems preposterous to them in scripture. It's better to understand it as a purely symbolic and spiritual thing. Here's my response. And it actually has to do with Noah. And it's funny because Peter in second Peter actually goes through all this and he appeals to Noah and he says the people who mock the promise of his coming, they're just like this generation that are on the earth when God brings along the flood and the people who are in these days, which are Peter's days now, 2000 years ago that are mocking it. They forget that not everything went on as it always had. It's not like from the time Adam and Eve were created that nothing ever happened on the earth. There was this little tiny thing called the global flood, which wiped out all of humanity except for eight people. And I say little tiny thing in jest, right? (laughs) You can't see my facial expressions, but I mean, it's not tiny. This thing is global and epic in proportion, and it's absolutely huge. Here's my point. If you were alive during Noah's 500th year, when God came to him and said, I'm going to do this. And you had the hermeneutic, which basically said, no, that seems really far-fetched. I've never seen any evidence that you would ever do something like that because there's no evidence of that in the past. And it seems to be just unbelievable to me. Uh, No one would ever say that including our Reformed and Presbyterian brothers. Why don't they say that? Because it's now behind us. But I want you to put yourself at the beginning of this entire journey and say, what would you say if you could, and especially if you had this hermeneutic that you now carry, if you were to hear something as radical as, I'm going to come back and I'm going to destroy the earth by, by water. You'd be like, uh, that doesn't make sense. Um, you know, just like he says, I'm going to come back and destroy the earth by fire in this judgment that I'm calling the great day of the Lord. And I'm going to spell that out for you in in the book of Daniel called the 70th week of Daniel. And this is what it's going to look like. That's just cataclysmic. And at the conclusion of that, I'm actually going to bring a rule upon the earth where Christ is going to rule over uh, all of creation, just as Adam was commanded to do. And Christ is actually going to do that for a period of a thousand years. 
and then there will be a new heaven and new earth. And by the way, the entire world will bow the knee to Christ. They're not bowing the knee to Christ now, not saying that he's not in a universal uh, authority over all of creation, Hebrews 1, 3. We're not denying that, but uh, right now the Egyptians do not bow down and pay homage to Christ and acknowledge him as king and lord of all the all of creation. Neither do the other nations. They mock him, they spurn him, they scorn him, they do all the same things. If they had the opportunity and he was back on the earth, they would crucify him again if they could. Not that they could, right? So those things haven't happened. And the answer of our Reformed brethren is they're not going to happen because Christ is ruling now and there is no literal kingdom. And when he comes back, it's just going to be heaven. Well, that's not exactly true. Uh, And the scripture doesn't give us the allowance to do that. And again, I appeal to you and say, come back here to this narrative and try and put yourself in the world before the flood came upon the world and see that you would have a very difficult time believing in a flood. And yet our reformed brothers and sisters don't because it's in the past. And all I'm trying to say is God can still do incredible radical things in the future. And he's given us a little bit of a glimpse into what those things look like. And we can be instructed by this very event here. So that being said, coming all the way back to verse 10 here, I'm known for my rabbit trails, both in my family and in our church family here locally. So I I hope you'll pardon me. Uh, But as we come back to verse 10, God literally meant it, right? He doesn't give Noah a time frame at the beginning when he says, I'm going to, I'm going to bring judgment and blot out mankind from the earth. But once the ark is complete, then he does give him a time frame and he says, okay, seven days. We have to take that literally. Numbers mean something uh, in the scripture. Sometimes, sometimes they can refer to an age, maybe, but sometimes when they're very, very specific, then they mean specific things. When he says, I'm going to bring rain in seven days, that doesn't going to mean, uh, you know, seven ages from now. It means seven days, seven lunar cycles, uh, you know, night and day on the earth. And then when it says again in verse 10, after seven days, <laughs> The waters of the flood came upon the earth. That's not seven ages and epochs of time on the earth. No, it's seven literal days, just like God said he would. And so then we see this date specified. It's not a fanciful account. All we know is this, verse 10, or verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened and rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. All right. So we have this date, 600th year of Noah's life, second month, 17th day of the month. And, uh, you know, people have taken the Jewish calendar and and calculated that out. I think it comes to like July something and whatever. Uh, That's actually inconsequential. But what we do know is it's enough for, Moses, as he's recording this down, you know, at the direction of God and under inspiration for the people of Israel to understand that this is a real event that could be marked on their calendar. And that's important for us. It's not a symbolic thing. It's not uh, anything like that. And by the way, uh, every single major civilization of the world has some record of a flood, every single one. Uh, civilizations that have never, ever been in contact with each other, some civilizations that are long gone, but we find archaeological evidence and we find paintings and we find things on pottery, we find records, and we find that they all, all ancient civilizations, uh, bear some record of a flood account. And 
I don't think that that is a coincidence. I think that this, this shows that this is a very real event. And then we see the nature of the flooding at the end of verse 11 and in verse 12, the windows of heaven were open. Uh, actually before that, the fountains of the great deep burst forth, the windows of heaven were opened, rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. All right, uh, let's get into this a little bit here and we'll probably end up having to just cap our this episode here with verse 12. I kind of knew that would probably happen. Uh, we can work through the rest quickly. I wanted to get that that point in hermeneutically though because it's very, very important at least to dwell on. And I hope, you know, if anything comes from this, that you at least dwell on that and and can really put yourself in that position and say, okay, how would I respond if I didn't know the outcome of this and I didn't see the evidence around me and I'm, I'm just told I have to take this by faith. Um, again, I just want to challenge, especially my Reformed brothers and sisters, uh, to really give that an honest evaluation. Now, when it comes to the nature of the flooding, we see this bursting of the fountains of the deep. Um, God specifies the boundaries for the ocean. Very fascinating. One of my favorite verses in scripture, because we moved to a coastal town in Southeast Florida, uh, Job 38, 11, God says thus, this far you may come and no farther as he's telling the ocean, this is where it can go. Now this doesn't account for king tides and, uh, you, you know, things like tidal surge when hurricanes come in and things like that. But he has set a boundary for the ocean. And he says, you cannot transgress this boundary. This again, falls under Hebrews one verse three, that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. And he sets limits on things. And so the ocean is not able to just come in and cover all the world and never will again. Uh, there was a time when he opened up everything and there was massive flooding. Uh, but again, he has set a boundary. So as regards to the deep here, I want to read a comment from John Morris. This is, I believe, the son or the grandson. I can't remember. I think it's the son of Henry Morris, who carried on in his father's legacy, works for the Institute of Creation Research now. Uh, with regard to the deep, he says this in scripture, this usually refers to the ocean, Genesis 1 verse 2. So the great deep, which was broken up, evidently speaks of a great subterranean reservoir or chamber deep inside the earth, all of which spewed forth their contents at the same time. This breakup continued all over the earth for 150 days. This is going to come later on in this chapter and into the next chapter, not only in verse 11, but in verse 24 of chapter 7 and verse 2 of chapter 8. This reference to broken up merits attention, he goes on to say, keep this in mind, right? That all the fountains of the deep burst forth or were broken up. That's the word that we're looking at. Because this term implies a wrenching of the earth's crust, a great tectonic event. The same word is used in Numbers 16, 30 to 33 to describe the supernatural opening up of a great pit into which the rebellious Korah and his followers and their families fell, thereby squelching their mutiny against Moses' leadership. Any such breaching of the earth's crust results in earthquakes and, if occurring underwater, results in devastating tsunamis, sometimes called tidal waves, traveling through the water at speeds approaching the speeds of sound. Continued pulsation of these fountains over all the earth for 150 days would totally restructure the surface of the earth, demonstrating God's hatred for the sin of the antediluvian world. Coupled with the other factors involved in the flood, it is no wonder that the, quote, world that, that, was, that then was being overflowed with water 
perished. That's taken from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 6. And again, this comes from an article written by John Morris called All the Fountains of the Deep. Now, what's interesting about that article there is that was written many, many years ago. And what we have is we have biblical scientists, and by the way, just a little quick note on this, is that some of the leading voices in science advancement over the last several hundred years have been Christians, not atheists, but Christians. And I just want you to think about that. Uh, Historically speaking, now we have a lot of you know, supposedly cutting edge minds and astrophysicists and things that are, are openly atheist. But for hundreds and hundreds of years, the people who really pioneered the way and uh, were able to articulate incredible theories that have proven to be true all these years later are people who've had a great awe and respect for the word of God and for God himself. And they looked at creation and said, there must be an order to this because God is a God of order. And they set their mind to these things. All right. I say that because you have brilliant minds and these people that work at these institutions are not, they're not troglodytes. I always like to get that word out when I can, right? A troglodyte is a cave dweller, uh, people who have no knowledge of anything. Like you could substitute Neanderthal in their archetypical way, you know, and I don't believe in in, in that necessarily. We, we've dispelled that before because uh, that that's really an evolutionary way of thinking. But the idea is that they have no education. They're just, you know, Bible thumpers that have never studied anything out. A lot of these people that work at places like Creation Ministries, Institute for Creation Research, even Answers in Genesis, these guys are multiple PhDs in specified fields, um, you know, postgraduate, uh, postdoctorates uh, in specialties and things like this that are, you know, highly, highly advanced. And so when these people write and research on these things, they're putting their mind and, and, and applying their mind to wisdom. They're asking the Lord for insight. They're using their studies and their expertise and they're applying them to the scripture and say, well, if this is what this is, then it has to mean this. And so when he gives us a little bit of insight into like the wrenching of the crust or the, the mantle of the earth, uh, we, we really have to, to take note. Now, what's, what's fascinating about this, and I think that this is just, just mind boggling, I believed all this when I preached through it. I had heard this. I had done research back then uh, in, I think it was early 2016 that I may have preached this particular sermon, March of 2016. And so I, I had done the research and and I recognized this. But what's really fascinating is from time to time, the Bible will speak on a subject about which there is no extra biblical confirmation or, you know, something outside of the Bible. For instance, back in the late 1800s, we know that the Bible speaks of a people called the Hittites, and there was no archaeological evidence for the Hittites. And so back then, you know, you had uh, German critical theory, source critical theory with regard to the Bible, and they were beginning to really criticize the Bible in the mid-1800s, the mid-19th century. Uh, This source criticism, you know, erupted out of the Tübingen School in Germany, it was just a horrible time. I mean, people held to the Bible, but it just fell under incredible critique. One of the things is, is what about these people, the Hittites? There's no evidence. Well, fast forward 30 some years, and all of a sudden on an archaeological dig, they unearth evidence and lots of it, not just one little piece for this ancient people that no one had ever heard of except in the Bible called the Hittites. And all of a sudden, oh, the Bible's true. Now, did that result in a mass 
you know, evangelistic campaign where people converted to Christ immediately? Did all the people who doubted the Bible immediately bow the knee? No, of course not. Uh, people who are at enmity with God, dead in their trespasses and sins, they're going to continue in that vein. Uh, there's no surprise there. Well, what about then moving back to this text? The idea that we've been told, and at least I grew up with this idea, you know, I grew up in the public schools in the 80s and the 90s, uh, and I was told that, you know, scientists had a really good idea because, you know, they're very, very smart and they can make educated guesses about what our mantle and our crust and even the outer core and inner core of the earth were made up of. Okay, uh, possible, yes, I, I will concede that. And there was probably a time in my life where I was more apt to believe that without questioning any of it. But science is continually on a spectrum and changing. Uh, hopefully we know that. Uh, these last few years have really gone the wrong way with regard to how we view the term science. Uh, that's a story for a different day. Uh, but science shouldn't be never question it. It should be always test your theories and come up with new hypotheses and new theories and then test them out. And if, if the verdict and the result uh, goes against your theory, then you scrap that theory and come up with a new one. That's the way it should work. And so we were told that we know what the, uh, the mantle of the earth was made of. Well, that was all well and good until an obscure article appeared in 2014, which I didn't know about then, which said, we may be wrong about the, the, the mantle, and then it was several years while scientists were looking into this. And then just last year, this is incredible. Just last year, this really came to the forefront uh, in September of 2022. And there was an article, uh, Newsweek put it out, but it was published by many others as well, uh, called Scientists Discover Watery Landscape Over 400 Miles beneath the earth's surface. Now keep in mind everything that we just read from John Morris, who postulated that there must be vast oceans under our oceans. Now I'm not going to take time to read this entire article from Newsweek, but the fact is I remember we're hearing about this a few months ago and I was like, wow, this is really fascinating. Uh, and here's what you need to know. Okay. So in our technology and everything that we've been able to do in this earth, uh, we have been able to drill just a little over seven miles down. Uh, the deepest hole ever drilled in the earth is called the Cora Super Deep Hole. Uh, it was drilled by Russian scientists. It went like 7.1 or 7.2 miles into the earth's crust. That's as far down as we've ever been able to go, uh, or maybe 7.5 miles, okay? The, the Cora Super Deep Borehole, 7.5 miles. Okay, the lower mantle, the mantle of the earth, lies between 410 and 1800 miles below the surface of the earth. So our deepest hole doesn't even get really close to the mantle at all, not at least to the lower mantle. But they have discovered through some diamonds that have worked their ways up and some of the trace minerals that are found in them, evidence of water. In other words, these minerals could not be present in these diamonds if uh, unless there were water and these clearly come from that part of the earth and now they are saying that there are oceans here at this point in in the earth's mantle that are hundreds of times the size of the waters that cover the surface of the earth now that is <laughs> that is mind-boggling 
just absolutely mind-boggling because what it means is there are actually oceans beneath our oceans and God keeps all of those at bay. So everything was at his disposal. We may have had a, a water canopy covering the earth. Uh, there was no rain in those days and, and the water, you know, there was a mist that rose up from the ground. You know, we, we see that earlier on in the text. We don't know if people had experienced rain. We do know that 40 straight days and nights of rain is going to produce a lot of flooding. We also know, again, from what we referenced with John Morris there, that this uh, flooding and the eruption of the great deep is going to cause massive tectonic movement. So, you know, were there were there mountains the way we know of mountains today? Well, maybe, maybe not. We, we don't know because of all the tectonic movement that took place during the flood. Now, we, you know, there, there's just so many factors in all of this. But in addition to all that came from the sky, once you unleash all the water from below, uh, you know, there's, it's just total chaos and cataclysm. I mean, that's really what's going on here. And that's what we really have to understand is that this is absolutely incredible. And now we have scientific evidence that says, yes, this is possible. Uh, yes, this happened. They're not arguing for the existence of the flood, but now they're saying without a doubt, there are vast oceans that are way bigger than anything we have on the surface of the earth below the earth. And that just literally takes everything that I learned when I was coming up through the public schools about the composition of the earth's mantle and throws it out the window because there was no theory, you know, there was, there was no postulization of, you know, postulating, excuse me, of, of an idea that there were somehow oceans there. This didn't come to the forefront until just this last year in the mainstream science and scientific journals. Now, does that mean that there's going to be a great awakening and there's going to be, you know, people repenting of their sins and turning to Christ because of what happened this last year? Uh, probably not. Uh, I, I, I sincerely doubt it. But I just wanted to point that out, that there is actually a definite, reasonable explanation for all these things. So we'll leave the episode there. We went a little bit long today. We'll come back and finish out chapter seven in our next episode. This has been another podcast of expositional excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.